Join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you that in Christ alone we can stand. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity this, this morning to now hear from your word. Father, we know according to this word that you are a God who speaks. And that this word is living. And that when you speak, Father, a creative work comes about. So we ask, Father, that you would speak to us this morning from your word. And that you would create in us a heart that longs and loves Christ. And we ask this for your glory. We ask this to be done by your power. The power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles now and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. And we'll begin again here in our study of Mark with verse 7. We want to have a discipleship culture here at FCF. We want to be about the business of making disciples. But what does that look like? And how do you do that? We see here in this passage this morning that simply to do that work of making disciples is to be about the work of following Christ's example and calling others to follow Him as well. I think sometimes this word discipleship sort of is confusing. Well, what does that look like? And how do I do that? What curriculum do I need to follow? Some of those things certainly are helpful. Some of those things are wise. Some of those things can give a structure. But they are simply the structure of what is being taught to us this morning from this text. Now last week we ended on a significant note of rejection. Look with me at verse 6 of Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. We've noted the opposition to Christ and his ministry and we ended last week on a very significant note of opposition, even a significant note of rejection. Now this morning's passage really marks a turn from Mark 1 verse 14 all the way till 3 verse 6 is called the early phase of God of Christ's ministry in Galilee. And from this morning's passage, starting in verse 7 all the way to chapter 6, verse 13, we see the later phases of the ministry of Christ. And those are marked by this morning's appointment of the twelve. And it goes all the way to the sending out of the twelve in chapter 6. The opposition increases in the second half of this ministry. Beginning with this morning's message, we see the crowds who go from just being from Galilee to now we see them coming from a much larger geographical region. And they're growing quickly. And next week we will be introduced to a new form of opposition, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. What also marks this second phase of ministry is the parables, the parables to illustrate the kingdom of God. And we'll take those on in a couple of weeks, beginning in chapter 4. Let's look at 7 through 12 this morning as the first section of this word to us. And if you're taking notes, I have two sections. The first section I've entitled, Knowing About Jesus Isn't the Same as Knowing Jesus. Knowing About Jesus Isn't the Same as Knowing Jesus. And in the second section, verse 13 all the way through 19, we'll look at what it means to be appointed to the ministry. 
Knowing about Jesus isn't the same as knowing Jesus. This latter phase of ministry in Galilee has some very significant characteristics. But characteristics that we can see all the way back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we saw Christ going into the wilderness on more than one occasion, symbolizing his reliance upon Christ. And here in chapter 3, we see him do the same thing. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. If you looked at verse 35 of chapter 1, you see that Christ withdraws to a desolate place. And we know from verse 16 that desolate place was by the sea. And then in verse 39 of chapter 1, Christ casting out demons. Well, here in verse 7 of chapter 3, Christ again withdraws to the sea and once again is confronted by demons. What can we learn about this? Well, we can learn that time spent with the Father refreshes us for the work of ministry, but also increases the opposition to the ministry of God. We've said many times, let us not be surprised that after a time of heaven being seen as most desirable and most glorious, that the fires of hell burn most hot, most brightly, most ferociously. And that's what happened here. We'll look more at the unclean spirits in a, in a minute. But let's look at these great crowds. The way Mark writes, you notice in verse 7, a great crowd followed. Verse 8, when the great crowd heard what he was doing, they came to him. Verse 9, because of the crowd. Well, where is this crowd from? Well, it's from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. What does that tell us? Well, Galilee and and Judea and Jerusalem is where they were. But Idumea was way south. Beyond the Jordan was to the east of them. And Tyre and Sidon were to the north. Simply put, the crowds had gone from being just around Galilee to going from as many as 100 plus miles away to come to Christ. To come see this miracle worker. The geographical region of his influence and who he was and what he was doing became very, very large. And Christ would eventually go to every one of these places except for Idumea. And here they are, they're coming. And they're coming in large numbers. They're coming in such large numbers that there's even a possibility of Christ being trampled. Verse 9, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. His popularity had increased far and wide. Is popularity the measure of fruit? No, not in this passage. This passage tells us with a resounding no that popularity is not the measure of fruit. Eternal fruit, gospel fruit. In fact, in this passage, great crowds and popularity do not equal long-term faithfulness to the call of Christ. Jesus being popular doesn't mean Jesus is your Savior. You can go to someone tomorrow here in Fredericksburg at a coffee shop and ask them if they knew Jesus. Oh, yeah, I know. I know about Jesus. But that doesn't mean that they've been saved. And in fact, that's some of the difficulty now. You can go to a third world country and share the gospel and they've never even heard the name of Jesus. 
You talk to most people that you cross on the street and they've all heard of Jesus. But just because he's popular doesn't mean that he's their savior. In fact, wanting Jesus to fix your situation is different than wanting Jesus to heal your soul. That's what runs the prosperity gospel. You come to Jesus, you get your situation fixed. But that doesn't mean that he's healed the soul. These people were coming with great crowds to find their situation fixed. But they weren't coming to have their souls healed. And the question then would be, well, why did Christ put up with such pressure? Not just pressure from a great crowd coming to see him, even physical pressure, pressing in on him, even falling on him. Think of a mass mob trampling someone. Why did he put up with the pressure? According to Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. But in that work of proclaiming liberty to the captives, in that work of binding up the brokenhearted by healing them, verse 10, for he healed many, there's opposition that again comes. Verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We saw this passage in some ways earlier in the Gospel of Mark. A man by the name of Lane helps us with this. He says, The demons addressed Jesus as the divine Son of God in a futile attempt to render him harmless. These cries of recognition were designed to control him and strip him of his power in accordance with the conception that knowledge of the precise name or quality of a person confers mastery over him. In this context, Son of God is not a messianic title, but a recognition of the true status of their adversary. Maybe this would help you. Think of a father who has a child who maybe, maybe is not listening as much as they ought to. And so what does this father do to sort of help set the tone that I have authority? Cody, Christopher, Carnett, you come over here. He knows my full name. And he uses my name to exert, I have authority over the top. I'm the father here. You're in rebellion. Conform yourself. Well, this is what the, the demons were doing. Son of God. But not as a means of worship, but as a sense of, I know who you are, and we are desiring to overcome you. And Christ says, no. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. So even the acknowledgement of the unclean spirits, that he was the son of God, is true, but they're always acknowledging it with evil intent. They're never desiring to say it as a means of truth, though they are professing truth, but it's with evil intent. It goes to the heart. If Jesus being popular doesn't mean Jesus is your Savior, then we'd have to say here, you can know about Christ, but that doesn't make you a faithful disciple any more than these unclean spirits. As a as sort of a side note here, as sort of a transition, note the familiarity of Christ. Christ, Christ tells us there is no temptation that is not common to men, but with the temptation will make a way of escape. Note the familiarity, familiarity he has with the pressures of life. 
pressures of people and demands. I mean, just crushing him physically, just touching him. Walking through the streets and just hand upon hand upon hand upon hand, pressing into him, trying to touch. The pressures of opposition to ministry, the pressures of relationships, people wanting to use him not for the reason he was there in their life. Christ is well acquainted with the pressures of life. And he gives us, gives us an example of what to do with the pressure mounts. Very practically. What do you do when the pressures of life mount? Well, he tells us. As a transition, look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain. Get alone with God. Get alone with God. Go find yourself some way, some means to get some individual time with God. My job is to be a part of your life. But if I'm not connected and if I'm not in right relationship with the Lord first, I'm a useless shepherd by the great shepherd. So there's times that I schedule in, there's, there's time every day that I schedule on my schedule so that someone calls me and says, can you, I'll say, well, unless it's you know, really pressing, I'll say, well, you know, I actually already have something on the schedule. Could you meet with me this afternoon? Could you meet with me tomorrow morning? Whatever it may be. Sometimes you have to set life up today with the pressures and speed of it all. You have to literally schedule it that I'm going to be with the Lord today. So if someone even says, hey, well, what are you doing? Well, I've got something on my schedule. If you say, I've got time to be with God on my schedule, they think you're rude. What, you don't have time for me? Get away alone with God. Number one, what about if the pressures of life increase? Get away alone with God. Number two, get away alone with God and pray. Hear from him, from his word, and then respond in prayer. Luke 6, 12, the corresponding passage to Mark three thirteen. It says, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Christ, knowing that the task of calling the disciples, these 12 that would be the apostles, was laying before him, and instead of just doing whatever, spending his time in ministry even, He spends it preparing in prayer. Number three, get away with close friends who can encourage you in the Lord and help in the ministry. If the pressures of life are mounting to such an extent, get away with God, get away with God and in prayer, and then get away even with those close friends who can encourage you in the Lord and help in the ministry. Let's look at this appointment to the ministry. Second section here. Knowing about Jesus isn't the same as knowing Jesus. First section, Mark 3, 7 through 12. Second section, appointed to the ministry, starting in verse 13. Look with me there at the text. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Well, let's put to death a little bit of a myth here. How many disciples did Christ have? He had many, many, many disciples. But these 12 were specific disciples that he called out and granted to have the work of apostles. Well, what's the difference? A disciple is a learner. And there were many people that were following Christ and even learning about Christ. But an apostle was a messenger, one called to be sent out to do the work of not only learning, but also 
exponentially growing, exponentially pouring in to others from what they had learned. And for the New Testament church, we're called to be disciples of Christ. We see that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go into all the world and make disciples. The authority of Christ being given to the authority of the church to do that work. And yet our task is, though we're making disciples, is much more reflected in the work of the apostles. We're to learn of Christ, but we're also sent out by Christ with a message. The message of hope. The message of healing from sin. Let's look at a couple of things appointed to the ministry. Let's look at a, thing, a couple of things that we can reflect as truth here. Number one, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve. Disciples are appointed by God. We must remember that disciples are appointed by God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called. We are now appointed to the same ministry, but we're appointed by God. And what is the ministry? The ministry is being with Jesus and giving a living testimony as being dependent upon Him. But this should free us up. When in the call to make disciples, it's often, well, is this person going to make a good disciple or a bad disciple? That's not your, that's not your job. God's the one who does the calling. God's the one who does the appointing on whether or not they will be a true disciple. He's the one who knows the heart. We're just called to the work. Disciples are appointed by God. Disciples are those that are with Him. Look at there in verse 14. So that they might be with Him. Luke 10, verse 38 through 42, we have a a picture of what it means to be with Him. There were two ladies, Mary and Martha. We know this story well. And Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And notice he was serving Christ. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Are you anxious and troubled about many things? But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Are we with him? Do people people recognize that we have been with Jesus? Disciples are those that are with him. And there is nothing greater than being with Jesus. And yet so oftentimes we exchange that for something far less. And if we've been called, appointed by God to be with Him, our mission is very clear and it's simply walk with Him. Not anything else than simply to walk with Him. We've been saved to a relationship with God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ comes and restores what was broken at the fall. What was before the fall? Adam and Eve walked with God in in close and intimate and perfect relationship. What does Christ do now? Restore the ability to walk with God. That's what it means to be a disciple. To simply go back to the garden and walk with Him and talk with Him, as the hymn says. Number three, 
Disciples are appointed by God. Disciples are those with him. Disciples teach what he spoke. Our disciples teach what he taught. And they do what he did. Notice, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He simply said, you're going to teach what I teach, and we know that from Mark 1 is, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe. That's his main mission, is the ministry of the word. We're to teach what Christ taught. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Go into all the world, teaching them, what I have commanded. And we're simply then to model what he modeled. We're simply to minister as he ministered. We're simply to have a relationship with the Father as he had a relationship with the Father. We're simply to make disciples as he made disciples. Let's not get caught up in whether or not we have the authority to cast out demons here. He's simply saying, I'm going to have you do what I'm doing. And that's extended to many different ways. But let's look at who he appoints. He appoints 12. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, go for souls and go for the worst. And Christ did that. Let's look at some of the descriptions of those who Christ chose. And really, he didn't have them for three years. His ministry was for three years. Christ was, 30 to 33. But really, this is sort of the halfway mark of his ministry. Right here in Mark chapter 3. So if we do the math, they had about 18 months with him. We don't know all about these men that are listed. But I list a few things we do know. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Which is ironic. Because Peter means rock. Which is the direct opposite of his nature. Simon was brash. He was clumsy. He was hasty. He was impulsive. And yet Christ gives him this nickname as if to say, be who you are as a nickname. Peter, you're going to be the rock. I'm going to call you to something that you're not currently now. Matthew was a publican, a wretch, an outcast in the eyes of the Jews. Thomas was a pessimist. He was a moody, melancholy person. James and John were aggressive, volatile, competitive, impetuous, narrow-minded. Christ having a nickname for them as well, Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. Andrew was a quiet, faithful man. Judas Iscariot, listed here as the betrayer. Others that we really have nothing about, we know nothing about other than what we see here in this passage. And what is most remarkable about these 12 is the fact that nothing is remarkable. They were, according to Acts 4.13, uneducated common men. There was nothing remarkable about these men. In fact, if anything, they were completely unremarkable. And yet, under the authority and the teaching of Christ, they were transformed into men that would change the world over. In just a few years. And we've got to ask the question. or the, the, We cannot come with the excuse. But you don't know my past. You don't know the sin. You don't know the difficulties I've gone through. There's no way Christ could use me. Oh yeah? Look who he used here. We know according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And such were some of you. 
when Christ comes and does the work of regeneration, we're not known by our past anymore. We're known by the fact that he's in us, the hope of glory. And Christ isn't looking for the perfect, the well, or the righteous. He calls the sick and the sinner to repentance. And when Christ heals a sinner of his sin, everything changes. And that's exemplified in these 12. One of the unique wonders of the Christian life is that the Christians have the ability to change. Introverts change into disciple makers and evangelists. Those who struggle with fear of man turn to fear of God. Those who have a love for sin in the world exchange that love for a love for Christ. Addictions of all types are changed into satisfaction in God. That's modeled by these twelve. May we say that if we have been saved today, if you know Christ as your Savior, and in Christ alone you find the faith to be saved, you aren't the same anymore as you once were. The Holy Spirit is now in you. That's what shows a true Christian. is because they walk around as changed people. And you walk up to somebody you haven't seen in years and they go, you're not the same anymore. What happened? You've changed. Because a Christian walks as a changed person. We've been appointed, as these men were appointed to be apostles, we've been appointed to the ministry of discipleship as disciples of Christ. We are called to this. We are equipped by Christ for this. We are empowered by Him for this work. Whether it's discipleship in the home, which is where it should first start, whether it's outside the home, whether it's in your workplace, you are called to this, but you are equipped for this. We are called to make disciples of Christ. We're not called to make disciples of ourselves. God does the calling. We do the work of teaching what Christ taught and doing what Christ did. God simply does the work through us. Second Timothy 2.2 Entrust these things to faithful men was Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Make disciples of faithful men. Notice, make disciples of faithful men, not of perfect men. These men were not perfect. They failed Christ in a very short time at the garden. They all abandoned him. But their faithfulness came back around. Because though they failed, they got back on track. Brothers and sisters, we're going, to be, we're going to be imperfect people. We are imperfect disciples. And those who we seek to disciple are going to be imperfect. But we're not looking for perfection because there is none. We're looking for faithfulness. So two quick thoughts of application here for, for what we should look for. How do we find faithful people? How do we, how do we find those who we can, we can call to follow Christ more deeply? Well, in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, we, have, we have the analogy of the hardworking farmer, of the athlete and, and the soldier. If you look at these 12 men and, and their personalities, but also their, their background, their lifestyle, I think there's two things we can look for that marks a good disciple. 
And notice these two things aren't necessarily whether they've got it all together, whether they have the right personality, whether that they are, seem to have life well connected. It's just two things to look for. Are they hardworking and are they hungry? You can't make a faithful disciple. You can't entrust these things to faithful men unless they're at least hardworking and hungry. Hungry for the word. Hungry to know, the, hungry to know Christ. Hungry to do as Christ did. Hungry to teach as Christ taught. What he taught. And willing to work hard at it. Willing to discipline themselves. Willing to be faithful. Even against opposition. And how do you know then if, if that hardworking, hungry person is faithful? Then give them a test. Give them something to do. As Christ did. Even these disciples here will see in the coming weeks. And see how they respond. And my suggestion would, you, would be to you. If you see someone who's interested in Christ. And you're thinking, hmm, that might be hardworking. That might be a hungry person. My my simple suggestion would be to you to give them the gospel of Mark. Tell you what, why don't you read four chapters of the gospel of Mark. We'll meet at Java Ranch this week. I'll read the same four chapters and let's discuss it. Spend an hour, nine to ten. Tuesday work for you? Yeah, Tuesday works for me. See if they show up. See if they've read the word. If they've read the word, they've shown up. How about five through eight next week? Let the word speak to them. Let Christ introduce himself to them and see what happens. And I suggest to you, there will be massive change that will happen. And all you're doing is reading the word with them. The famous missionary C.T. Studd said this, Give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. And then the well-known phrase, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. We have been appointed to the ministry of making disciples. So how are we doing? How are we doing in the home, appointing our children and our wives, and even our husbands as a wife, to Christ? Discipleship is simply walking as he walked and teaching what he taught. And doing those with those that are around you. It doesn't have to necessarily be a younger person. It doesn't necessarily have to be an older person. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone that you know well. But it can be done quite easily. Let the word do the work. And you just walk with the Lord in faithfulness. And I can guarantee you, he will be faithful to use you. It might be little. One of the men of these 12 was Andrew, a man of little things. He didn't do much big, but collectively all together, he was the one who took the gospel to many, many, many nations. He was the one, he was one who was martyred brutally. See, the call to, call, the call to follow Christ isn't an easy one. And what these 12 men didn't understand pre-cross is what we understand post-cross. That the call to follow Christ is one to give your all because he gave his all for you. To do what he taught us to do. To do what he has done for us. Every one of these men, save one, were martyred. John being the only one that died of old age. But when Christ comes in, that doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that matters is whether or not they have been faithful and can hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray.
Father, what a joy it is to know that you have appointed us as sons and daughters of the King. What a joy it is to know that you have equipped us for the work of ministry with your word and by your example. And Father, what a joy it is to know that you have laid a mission before us to take the gospel to those who desperately need it. As we so, even now, so desperately need it, but have had our eyes open to it and have been saved by it. Father, stir our hearts to this work. May we see well, Father, here the the call. You have called us, those whom you have desired. You have called us to yourself. You have drawn us in. Formerly strangers and aliens and enemies to God and yet you have drawn us in love to yourself and you have now called us to this work. And oh, Father, may the response be an overwhelming yes, yes, yes. Here I am, send me, as Isaiah said. Father, use our church to make faithful disciples to be faithful disciple makers. And we trust, Father, that you will bring forth abundant fruit for your glory. That you will cast that seed where it needs to be into the heart that has been prepared by you. And you will bring forth that fruit. Father, as apprentices, as imitators, as we We do the work of casting that seed. We know, Father, you cast it through us and we trust that it will be cast well and we might have the joy of seeing a harvest of souls here at this church. We love you, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.